Previously on Storyological. <laughs> Tonight on Storyological, Planet Earth 2 oh, The Lives yeah. of Insects. Would you like me to wait until the plane goes over? Oh, God, you know, that makes me think of a school teacher that we had when I was um, 11, 12 years old. And he was kind of old and had fought in, if not the Second World War, something following it. He had kind of shell shock and um, like people, and so he was kind of semi-deaf and some of the kids used to take the piss out of him. And one of the one of the classes like would like knock knocked their desks kind of in a way that was this really offensive kind of drumming that brought machine gun fire uh choppers god i when i think about how fucking cruel kids are it breaks my heart and none of us had any concept of what it meant what he had been through we just thought he was weird and didn't align to our expectations of the world Humanity thumbs down. Right. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerood. And I'm E.G. Kosh. So my pick this week, readers, is The Cartographer Wasps and Anarchist Bees by E. Lily Yu, which was in Clark's World in 2011 and was nominated for virtually every short story genre prize, but did not win any of them, as far as I can tell. It came to my mind because... E. Liliu published another story in Terraform. I don't remember the name of it now, but it's a... The Wretched and the Beautiful, or The Beautiful and the Wretched. One of those... And that was that was a story about aliens coming to Earth and how humanity fails to deal with the, them as refugees. Right. We hate the ugly ones, love the beautiful ones. Humanity thumbs down. Right. Exactly. And, you know, it was... Uh, it was an interesting story, but what it really made me want to do was to go back and read the story that I remembered loving um, from her earlier writing. And, and I was really glad I did because it contains the same, or at least it's written, it seems, from the same kind of um, source and elaboration, right? It's a parable. It's a parable about colonialism and about people fleeing from one persecution only to exact persecution on others but it's done in such a kind of elegant way she's taken as her two peoples the the wasps who are evicted from their initial home by by humans by what is a a purging that is commenced by a small boy finding a stone that he likes the shape of and wanting to Mm -hmm. use it as a weapon. I was like, oh, yeah. yeah." Exactly like the children in the classroom you're talking about going rat-a-tat-tat. Yeah. He, yeah, he casts the stone without really considering the consequences or the depths of it, without even maybe the capability of considering the depths of it. Yeah, and like so many... You know, men in our history having, having. <laughs> oh, here's this weapon. Let, let's just let's just use it to annihilate people. Is this is this men in the humankind sense, or do you just mean? I mean, statistically well, speaking, I, it's I, men. I just mean, yeah, statistically speaking. I'm like, okay. I'm sure women have the same equal proclivity mm-hmm. for for violence and cruelty. Yeah, the rocks just don't fall at their feet as much. Exactly. Yeah. We we have to stoop and then pick them up for you. <laughs> anyway so mm. the wasps are driven from their home and they they sail down river to 
to a new place. But it turns out that this new place that they decide to locate themselves is very close to a beehive. And the bees try to make peace. They try to broker a way for the two races, the two peoples to live near each other. But the wasps are having none of that shit. They're like, we've been oppressed and now we will oppress you, motherfuckers. So Mm. get on your knees and pay us your tithes. I totally didn't read it as them responding to their oppression. I just, that's what the kind of civilization they were. Well, yeah, absolutely. There was, it being a response to their oppression is something I am reading into it mm. because something I took from this story, I was like, okay, it is a parable about colonialism and about oppression and about the erasure of cultures. But what do I take from this? And it is, I think what I take from it is that the cycle of violence persists. Violence was done to the wasps and the wasps do violence to the bees. The bees are then, at the end of the story, set free through a kind of freak human intervention. And they are at this point of choice, and they can choose to revert to their initial culture, of what they can remember. They can choose to have some kind of parody or watered-down version of the wasps' culture, or they can choose this other subculture which some of them have developed about anarchy, about not needing a ruler in the same way as they've needed rulers before. And that is the really important point to me, this this point of choice. I didn't even write this bit down, but the the parable, I mean, you read it as a parable of colonialism, as a as a cycle of violence, like is something to take from it. And I I understand that reading that's right there. And at the same time, it is in that reading that I am most disappointed that I it becomes more like the refugee story where if I just read it as a parable of colonialism and and the the violence that we do on and on and on, mm. I wouldn't love it. I, I wouldn't, I might like it and admire it. Okay, I don't even know if I really love it, but I did actually kind of love it the second time I read it this time because more than reading it only as a parable of colonialism, of the way that we colonize the space of others, I read in it a kind of a, a kind of twisted empathy and wonder that, that fueled the horror of that. In the, in the literal world of the story, the, the humans can't speak the language of the wasp. They, they don't seem equipped to understand the, the real beauty and wonder that exists in that hive. Mm. In, in the same way, the wasps don't seem willing to connect and understand the bees' culture. Mm-hmm. And then the bees that become anarchists would uh, unfortunately don't seem capable of surviving the winter. <laughs> yeah. um, and so part of what I loved in that, 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 that twisted-up nature of empathy and wonder is, is the feeling that this isn't a story where it's just... There's always someone bigger and there's always someone else to hurt. It was also a story of, of all of these model worlds, of all of these little bits of beauty and violence that is scattered up and down levels of perspective mm-hmm. and perception. And that, you know, as one race of humans, there's all of these worlds of insects with their own intrigues, their own politics their own beliefs and above humans there are probably all of these things with their own rules and so in reading it that way like a lot of 
great satires or parables. I didn't just end up with this feeling, which I think you could get from the story of a kind of fatalism, depression, like on and on. I felt like I came away from the story with that thing that I crave, which is to see the world anew, to feel wonder at all the different levels of pain and beauty that exist mm -hmm. because it is in... Yeah, it's, it's a, you empathize with every level of those model yeah. worlds that you're describing, right? You empathize with the humans and why, after the boy gets stung, why the mom destroys the wasp's nest. You totally get that. You empathize with the wasps needing to move into a new place. You maybe think they shouldn't be such shitheads to the bees when they move in. But then one of the most disturbing parts of it is the paragraph where she describes how after the wasps have moved in and, and they've reached this accord with the bees, what happens is they take some of the bee young and educate them. Educate them not just to clerical tasks, but to become cartographers as well and to create these beautiful maps. But in the background, there are things that the bees must ignore in order to to have this kind of peace. And that was a moment where my it really just cracked open my heart. Like the the sacrifices we make in order to maintain our own reality and to to live the life that is presented to us or that we have chosen somehow or that we feel we must choose. It's exactly that kind of moment where I could, I could be split and go one way or the other. Because on one way, I see such a direct rendering of the, the reality of colonialism that a part of me lifts out of the story and thinks, okay, yeah, I see what you're doing there. Mm -hmm. But the, the language of this story is you know, much like the wasps. It, it is full of delicacy and sting. And those moments of horror... Uh, like the one you're describing, or like when the first bee emissary comes to the hive and is immediately executed, right, one-to-one, -one, I get your allegory with the colonialism, yeah, that sucks. But it lifts, just like almost every moment in the story, it lifts to a place of, of delicate horror and precision because the wings of the bee that is executed are turned into stained glass windows that is a moment where it becomes poetry, where it... She literalizes her metaphor. So she's fine. She, mm -hmm. I'm assuming perhaps starts out with this as a, a a rendering of colonialism. But then once she's got her context, I feel like she follows it through to understand and to think about, okay, what would really happen in in this fictitious world? What would be the horrific thing that would be done? And how can I make it specific to bees and wasps rather than to yeah. humans. Right, and, and and how can I transform it into beauty? Because you could also look at it as one-to-one, -one, but if it was like a deeper one-to-one, -one, that, that most cultures praise beauty, most cultures transform the violence they do to themselves and to others into art. Mm -hmm. That's, that's yeah, she's just done it here with this story. <laughs> uh, it reminded me of Animal Farm. Mm. More as a point of comparison than to think is the same because it is uh, they're both stories of of politics and where you have animal species that are meant to en encode different manners of thought and what i thought about was the, the different way they individualize the existence of people in their stories so i remember the horse that gets turned into glue in animal farm i remember the pig that was the leader of the pigs I have. I feel like they had names. I'm not sure. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I read it. I thought about in this story about how even though in a way no one has a name, 
each group of people tends to end up with with specific voices, specific mm-hmm. like even though we don't know who those diplomats from the bees are, there's there's a feeling that they are individuals. And I I particularly dumb human that I am, or just this was in the story, it felt like when we go to the end and one of the daughters of the village that obliterated the wasps has realized that these wasps make beautiful maps and I can make the village's fortune if I go find those wasps. When she sets off down the dusty dirt road after this nest, it, it felt more apparent to me. I, I could see what Ilaliu was doing and in creating these individuals that themselves don't have a name but have a reality and that it goes to what you were talking about before that the power of the story is the way that she can shift empathy around Mm. is there a name for that kind of writing where to some extent the characters are archetypes right it's the queen it's the worker it's the diplomat and so they are representative of a whole swath of ideas and assumptions. You know, it's, so it's what we see in fables and fairy tales and parables and... Yeah, I mean, to different... Like, the differences between some of those genres is the way or the extent to which it's done. Right, yeah. Like, something that was a big deal to me at one point was understanding that there were people who turn individuals into archetypes. who An individual person begins to represent colonialism or marxism or Mm. there are people like stories like neil gaiman sandman where Mm. death Mm. becomes an individual teenage girl and so the archetype becomes individual or the individual become archetype there's a distinction and something that i found myself admiring in this story is the way that it it felt a little bit more like it was in the middle like Mm -hmm. Yes, you could we could read the boy that throws that first stone or the girl on the bike going down the dusty dirt road as emblems of, of archetypes and yet they felt like individuals to me in a way mm-hmm. that the foundress of the wasp kind of didn't but yeah. You know what else this story reminded me of? I do, but only because I can see the book in your lap. Okay, but I'm going to give you two. One well, the thing one plus one one is men in black because this story has a stacked perspective like we talked about where there's the universe of humans where there's the universe of wasps there's the universe of bees and within the universe of bees there's this universe of anarchist bees Mm -hmm. and and part of the like i said the wonder and pain of the story is the feeling that there's all of these different forevers and they may always be forever out of reach we may never really understand all the different realities and it reminded me of men in black that the end of that first Men in Black film, which is much more poetic and lovely than all the other Men in Black films, it ends by ripping out of our universe into those little animals, those aliens that are playing marbles. And each of the marbles is its own universe. And presumably Ah. those aliens are in another marble universe. And that, oh, it just gets my heart going right now. I love it so much. And the other thing was a confluence of two things, which reminded me of Michael Shaben's first short story collection called A Model World. Because in Ililiyu's story, one of the delicate, beautiful, kind of violent things, the wasps make maps, and those maps are for conquest and they're for beauty. And Mm -hmm. the epigraph of A Model World is this quote from Elizabeth Bishop that said, more delicate than the historians are the map makers' colors. That quote just continues to live in my brain, and I thought of it when I read the story, and then I thought 
oh, it's and it's also a model world story. Uh, and I just had a, a little literary happy. And now for something different. My pick for this week is a story called The Janitor in Space, which was written by Amber Sparks and appeared in American Short Fiction in 2014. Side note, Amber Sparks has a great who am I kind of thing and about me on her website, and you should go read it. Oh, really? It's cool. Okay, I'll check it out. This is a story, and I'll just go straight into it. This is a story that reminded me of an episode of Babylon 5 a bit. There's an episode of Babylon 5 that is told from the point of view of sanitation workers whose job it is to clean the station. And this story as well is the story of a janitor on a space station. I'm really not going to get away much longer without watching Babylon 5 with you, am I? Well, I mean, we can always watch a condensed version. Um, if you, You're never going to get away with the fact that I'm going to reference it a lot because <laughs> it's know, a, now it's now a seminal like... work. <laughs> Um, I need to understand it. So this is a story about a woman that is a janitor on a space station. It is one in which you I might find yourself thinking, what is a story at some <laughs> point? Like, what are these damn literary people doing? Because the the movement of the story is one of an encapsulation of, of the woman's past and how she came to be on the space station where the story is structured that the only scenes in the story really are the first scene and the last scene. And and the movement between those scenes is the movement through her past. It's our understanding of of her position. um, Yeah, yeah. What brought her there. Yeah, which, which, to make it sound a bit functional, when really I just find it beautiful, it, it executes the power of that perspective very well. The perspective of having what might often be an ignored viewpoint of a certain kind of person mm-hmm. uh, in space. And that, and that viewpoint of this person who's cleaning the station, that is cleaning up dead skin flakes, unsecured tampons, tube socks, seeing people watch porn, that viewpoint there in space somehow brings the infinite in a little bit closer where you can almost touch it. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the thing that really pulled me in i enjoyed that that movement of understanding why she had taken the decision to not only go into space and therefore limit her contact to the few people that are on the space station with her but then also take the job on that space station that meant she saw them the least amount of time possible right she's the night janitor so she doesn't encounter anyone really and i thought a lot it put me in mind of like a little mole that dug itself a burrow and digs itself a space that it knows the exact dimensions of. And this is what this janitor has done, not only in her physical space, but in her mind as well. Like she's working so hard to either avoid or maybe process. It's not really clear her past um, trauma that she kind of understands the parameters that she can operate inside of, which is basically minimize my human interaction. Yes. <laughs> let's let's make it as transactional as possible. And seeing her kind of, I guess, almost like seeing her pace back and forth inside of that mental space, crossing and recrossing, understanding why she's taken the decisions she has, visiting again this pivotal moment in her past, which is... A pivotal moment in what seems to be an an ongoing distressing childhood growing up with an abusive father. But there's this one moment that she highlights, that she talks about, which involves two other children, a gun, and her father. And 
like it wasn't clear to me from the way it was written whether she had fired the gun and it had hurt the children or maybe she had just stood by and let the father use the gun on the children or or maybe there was something else entirely but but you know what it didn't matter because what was important is that she found this moment incredibly distressing and that in the hindbrain Mm -hmm. there is very little distinction made between I hurt somebody and I allowed somebody to be hurt and so I found that to be very I found it very true representation of of an adult cycling around this childhood pain yeah yeah um orbiting one yes. might say yeah, yes yeah. oh i can't believe i missed that one it's all right yeah as much as the as as short and compact the story is it it does that thing that good stories do very well which is it, it layers its elements in such a way that they speak to each other in a way the writer might not always know explicitly but intuit and that readers intuit and might add their own explicitness. One of the things that I am fascinated by is God in space, because... Is that the sequel to Janitors in Space? Maybe, but that's the thing. The janitor in space brings with her her memories and thoughts about God and religion. And there's a passage where she discusses how God was in everything. It was in the faces of people. It was in... The fields, it was in the iron lungs that was in people's chests, squeezing and squeezing as they continued dying. Mm. A a lot of stories I have read that are set in the future or set in space, I feel like I am often missing those stories about people having this this personal and conflicted conversation with with a supernatural force. Um, it is often either rendered in anthropological terms like this group of people believe this, this mm. group of people believes this. It's often rendered as um, something silly or forgotten. And in this story, it is a present and ongoing struggle, as you mm-hmm. say, and reflected in in her struggle with the man from her past, her, her father. And there is a there's a moment where she says she isn't sure any woman ought to believe in God. And that felt like the kind of line that can only come from someone who has believed in God and who maybe still believes in God, but doubts it. Yeah, but has experienced something so terrible that it makes it very hard. The other line that really struck me in her consideration of God was where she quoted her pastor saying, death was the gift of a wise God. And she she questions that. She said, "Is is it really? And I thought, yeah. It totally is like immortality would be a, a horrible punishment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right, and and to me, the story or the the janitor. I also see her point of view. I see the story's point of view because it goes on to say, to her, death seems the opposite of wisdom, the opposite of mystery, the opposite of being out here in this vast, wondrous place. Mm-hmm. Death is the opposite of lonely, and lonely is the only thing the janitor owns. That felt like this story, this character, this is at the end, it knows. And that, to me, is all the movement I, I, I could need, really, is that that realization of the janitor understanding how they own their mm. loneliness and feeling at once in possession of themselves and in awe of the wonder that is around them. That was very powerful. And yeah, I can't believe that she would want to live in that loneliness 
forever in immortality. Like at some point, you know, this is not in the story or even really relevant to the story no, now, think- but but I just feel like at some point she must want the loneliness to end yeah. either through her own growth or through death yes though i would say growth because you're right that is that is there i mean the the actual last line of the story is and that makes it beautiful out here among the cold and bright beginnings yeah that realization comes at the realization of a new start a new opportunity and that just like the time bomb that never goes off it is just the door that is pointed to yeah. And the understanding it will be opened, but it's not opened actually in the story. Uh, one other thing I wanted to say, to go back to that first question of what is a story, I thought of, other than Babylon 5, I thought about Don Quixote because I thought about how a structure, a story like this that we talked about that is kind of in one place, circling, orbiting, and going through someone's past reminded me of of what people talk about as a Don Quixote-style novel, a picaresque kind of novel that is just a series of adventures that seemingly go nowhere. There is no arc. There's just thing, 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 thing. Mm. And the, the, the ultimate promise that somehow something will happen at the end. I don't know what. And it occurred to me, this is this kind of story in its way is its own picaresqueness in the same way that the Don Quixote narrative is about somebody telling you of this other person tilting at windmill after windmill without realizing what they're tilting at. You could imagine this kind of literary story as as a story of someone's past adventures where they were tilting at windmills over and over and over again. And you're really only reading one to continue to see how are they gonna tilt at that windmill or what windmill (laughs) are they gonna tilt at next? And then by the end of the story, are they going to come to an understanding about the true nature of windmills? Um, (laughs) Or learn how to stand upright and tilt at no one? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. You know, if it's a certain kind of fantasy story, they'll realize the windmill was inside of them Uh all along. If it's a certain kind of sci-fi story, they'll realize... Humanity should not have access to the windmills. It should be hidden from... Oh, right, yeah, the windmills have too much power, or in the Matrix way, there is no windmill. (laughs) Yeah. Which it occurred to me, all of those readings are in themselves what in a literary story we would think of as an epiphany. They're just different kinds of epiphanies. Mm -hmm. And sci-fi and fantasy have their own version of those epiphanies that come at the end of galactic wars. And literary stories have those kind of epiphanies that come at the end of somebody... Doing the washing up. Another definition of a story, when sometimes people say, oh, that's not a story, that's just a character sketch. I thought about that person saying that about this story. And I was thinking about... Well, if you do a character sketch really well, then the character you will see change. So story. So in this case, you know, you see her as a 13-year-old girl, bloodied and clenching this mop angrily, and then now she's up in space. But, but more, if you, if you do it well, that character has all of these pockets, and they just have these pockets full of stories yeah, that totally. you get to explore. Characters are story. Like inherently, each of us walks into a room trailing baggage and stories, and some, you know, even in the in what we assume, in the way we stand, and everything. Exactly. That's it. There is yeah. nothing else. That's what we go to it for. Thanks for listening, readers. It is almost certain, unless we've fallen through a black hole into a special netherworld of magical in-between dustness, 
that we did not manage to discuss all of the stories that exist. Nor did we say all of the things about these stories. Uh, there's too much. So if you have any ideas of other stories we should talk about or other things we should have said about these stories but failed to say. You can let us know on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. And you can follow her on Twitter at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow him on Twitter at Kubals. And if for whatever reason you're on Facebook and you feel like dropping by our page and following us or liking us or seeing what little doodles and pictures we've put up. <laughs> we are facebook.com slash storylogical. And of course, for show notes, links, gifts of uh, inappropriate and appropriate nature for a chance to listen to past episodes or subscribe to this podcast, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. The other thing to say is, if you have enjoyed this podcast, and we hope you have, did you know that we are eligible for the Hugo Fancast Award? No, ma'am, I did not. Please (laughs) tell me more. (laughs) Oh, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. So if you're registered to go to Helsinki or in August, or if you went to whatever it was before in the last year, I don't remember where it was. We didn't go. I don't know. Um, then you can uh, register your nomination for us. And we would love it if you did. Thank you. Happy nominating.